The key thing is don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett doing the show every Friday evening live on Revolution.Radio, the premier free speech radio network. Please do support them. Go to revolution.radio and you'll figure out how. You can support me by going to truthjihad.com or kevinbarrett.substack.com. And you can pretty well figure out how by, by there, there too. Just uh, subscribe to my Substack, stuff like that. Okay. Tonight we have a controversial couple of hours. In the second hour, the controversy carries over from last week. Last week we had Ron Unzan talking about his examination of the world mortality database that you can get to through UC Berkeley. And he claims that it seems to indicate that there's not really much of a correlation between any big mortality jumps and the introduction of mRNA vaccines. So according to that analysis, there's just no way that the vaccines could have killed the 100,000 plus that a number of folks uh, who've been on my show think that they have here in the United States Matthew Crawford is one of those. He'll be on in the second hour to talk about Ron Unz's analysis. We'll find out whether Matthew is convinced, partly convinced, or not convinced at all by what Ron had to say last week. Now, in the first hour, I have a prolific prolific author, journalist, uh, Richard Cook. He became well-known for exposing what really happened to the Space Shuttle Challenger, and he has been contributing really good in-depth articles to veterans today, uh, most recently, an urgent plea to American nationalists. The U.S. must stop being the divisive nation by cleaning up our own mess first. And it's it's another really good one. It covers a whole lot of ground, a good roadmap to where we really should be going as a nation, but unfortunately, obviously aren't. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about it anyway. So, hey, welcome, Richard Cook. How's it going? Good, Kevin. How are you doing? I'm well. Yeah, good to have you back on the show. Um, Great to be here. Yeah. So the the theme, I guess, of your article, sort of the underlying thread that ties it together, is the baleful influence of the neoconservatives, who they probably were a major force behind 9-11. They are a major force, the major force, behind the war on Russia through Ukraine. And uh, they're not really doing the United States any favors in terms of uh, of its foreign policy. Um, so how do we get rid of them? I mean, if, if the 9-11 wars can totally go south, as they did, and everybody can recognize that those wars are a disaster, even if they don't recognize that the neocons did 9-11 itself, how can the neocons still be in power, especially in a Democratic administration, when the Democrats were skeptical about those 9-11 wars, neocons were the proponents, and the wars became incredible disasters, and somehow the neocons survived and became the dominant advisors to both parties, and now they're running the country in a democratic administration and pushing us into World War III. What explains that? That's right. Yeah. I've been working on this uh, in in the book that I'm writing, 
which is reflected in this article that uh, uh, Veterans Today just published. Uh, the uh, neocons, of course, uh, became the dominant party uh, going back into the uh, Reagan administration. And you can see the influence coming out of uh, that period of time. I think probably the best expression of it was the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which uh, the Assistant uh, Secretary of Defense, Paul Wolfowitz, who was working under Dick Cheney, who was the Secretary of Defense during the first Iraq War, came out with this uh, statement uh, advocating for United States global military domination. Uh, now, not that that was a new idea, because uh, as I've also researched and <clears throat> will be will be publishing more about, this doctrine was actually fully articulated uh, at the start of World War II. Uh, and the uh, organization that was uh, uh, doing this was the Council on Foreign Relations, which, of course, was the Rockefeller-backed uh, think tank that came out of the post-World War I era uh, that paralleled similar groups in Great Britain uh, advocating for U.S. global uh, uh, military supremacy uh, through and after World War II. And that's what fed into all of the national security organizations being set up by Truman, uh, and it just continued, but it was really articulated most clearly during the Reagan military buildup. When Reagan came in, doubled the military budget, uh, and he did that through an act of subterfuge. Uh, it was done by parties in the uh, uh, Reagan administration and the CIA who began to portray Russia as much more powerful and much more of a threat than it really was at a time when the uh, uh, Soviet Union was beginning to break up. So they created this monster of, uh, of an image of the Soviet Union. Uh, and then when Gorbachev came along to make peace with them, uh, they promised Gorbachev that uh, uh, if he would meet them halfway, which meant in practice support the reunification of Germany uh, under the model that the West had created in West Germany, then the U.S. would not advance one inch further uh, east toward the Soviet Union. It reminds and me of some course, of the promises that were made to the Native Americans back in the day. Yes, <laughs> making these promises uh, uh, through the whole... Well, uh, white men speak of, with forked uh, tongue. Of, of of the country, but this was a particularly uh, uh, harmful uh, breaking of a pledge, uh, and it was really Bill Clinton who uh, had his own neocon cadres. Uh, you look at Madeleine Albright, for instance, as, as the best representative of that, and it was Clinton who started to move boundaries of NATO eastward, uh, and the Soviet Union, well, Russia at that time, uh, even asked to be included as a part of NATO. And, of course, they were ignored. Uh, now, when 9-11 uh, happened and the Bush administration came in, 
that's when the neocons really hit their stride. Uh, the project for a new American century was a, a repetition uh, of the Wolf of its Doctrine, but much more pointed in some of its uh, objectives. For instance, they began to talk in, uh, in the uh, documents that came out of that about uh, uh, biological warfare aimed at particular genomes of, uh, uh, of particular uh, nationalities. They, they said that would be a politically useful tool. Yes, exactly. And and uh, uh, so all of this began to, to build up, and then the neocons went on a tear with the so-called War on Terror. Uh, that was entirely a neocon-driven uh, enterprise. But by the end of the Bush-Cheney administration, uh, with the uh, horrible images coming out of the Abu Ghraib uh, CIA torture operation, uh, the economy was beginning to collapse through the uh, uh, financial meltdown. Uh, the uh, whole situation had become so bad that the uh, Bush's uh, popularity ratings hit a unprecedented low of 14%. So I think it was pretty clear at that time that the Republican Party that had been uh, pretty much running the show, even with the, uh, the eight years under Clinton, uh, not really departing at all from the whole Republican uh, war machine that was put in place by Reagan and, and, and just continued. But the uh, the Republican Party by 2008 had become what I think we can fairly call roadkill. So Obama comes in, Obama changes nothing. Uh, Obama becomes the savior of the uh, uh, banks that are too big to fail, but his foreign policy stays the same. He has a surge in Iraq. He has a surge in Afghanistan. He becomes the poster boy for drone killings. Uh, he almost begins a new war in Syria, uh, but that was preempted when uh, Russia under Putin stepped in and essentially got uh, uh, Obama and his bombing program to back off. But they still did the same thing in Libya. Uh, they, they bombed Libya. They destroyed that nation. And so the neocons were still there and they were still running the show, but they had slipped over into the Democratic Party. Now, because the Republican Party was so weak, there was a power vacuum in the Republican Party uh, in uh, uh, 2016. And uh, a guy named Donald Trump was able to take advantage of that by recruiting millions of what Hillary Clinton called deplorables, that is, just ordinary people who had seen their jobs uh, disappear to China and Mexico and elsewhere over a 20-year period. So to everybody's shock, uh, Trump was elected president. That was not in the script uh, uh, at all. But uh, the neocons, of course, tried to put their own people in there. I think of John Bolton, for instance, who was national security advisor for a while till 
until Trump canned him. But Trump was talking about things that were absolutely forbidden in this country. Uh, he hinted at getting out of NATO. Uh, he tried to make friends with North Korea. He even looked like he was going to try to make friends with Putin, which, of course, uh, opened him up to the whole Russiagate scam. Uh, I have read a document that says that the people who were in charge of the deep state uh, in the United States made a decision that Trump would be gone in a thousand days. And if you count the days from his inauguration, almost to the day, that's when his first impeachment uh, took place, uh, a thousand days later. And of course, after that, uh, Trump was crippled, and then the pandemic came along, and, and Trump was more crippled and could do absolutely nothing. One thing you didn't mention, though, uh, Richard, was that Trump was an abject slave of Bibi Netanyahu and his extremist Likud party in Israel. And he oh, moved the U.S. embassy yeah. to Jerusalem. Yeah. He uh, let yeah. the Israelis order him to kill General Soleimani, which nearly started World right. War III. So there, yeah. that was a, a very uh, negative aspect of the Trump presidency. Yep, very, very true. Uh, Trump was not able to resist all of the influences that were bearing down on him, uh, as you point out. But he was not gung-ho uh, neocon. Uh, and so they got rid of him and they brought in uh, Biden and Biden is totally abjectly sold out to the whole neocon scam. And uh, right now uh, they, they just can't stop when it comes to pushing and pushing uh, Ukraine deeper and deeper into this proxy war against Russia. And uh, nobody really knows where that's going to end. You know, let, let but, me mention one other aspect of, yeah, of Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I, I'm not so sure that Trump was all that much more anti-neocon than, let's say, Obama and Biden. I think it's just a different wing of the neocons. The, the wing of the neocons that uh, were good good with Trump were the Likud extremists that I mentioned, but also the anti-China right. extremists. Because on, during Trump's watch, right. we had all-out trade war with China. Uh, it appears that Trump's people launched... Uh, uh, bird flu uh, in 2018, pig flu in 2019, and then human flu, <laughs> that is COVID, in, right. uh, in late 2019 right. and 2020. And so this biological war on China was uh, quite extreme, really every bit as extreme as the current war on Russia through Ukraine. So it just seems to me that you've got these two different wings of the neocons. On the one side, you've got the anti-Muslim, anti, uh, anti-Iran, uh, you know, pro-Israel and anti-China neocons, people like Steve Bannon, who's right. really just another neocon. And then you have, on the other side, the uh, neocons who want the U.S. empire to take over the world, uh, which is probably the more mainstream wing of them. And, 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 are, and they want to get Russia first for some reason. For what, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that's I think that's all very true. Um, I guess I have a little bit of a picture of Trump as uh, somebody who was uh, it, it was more done to him uh, than by him. Now that that may not be correct, but he just seemed like uh, he, sp he spent four years. Uh, being a deer caught in the headlights. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, how much he went along with, how much he knew about, I really don't know, and I'm not sure anybody does. Uh, and, of course, what I'm saying is not to excuse Trump, 
but it's to say that the uh, uh, the powers that be, the deep state, had every intention of getting rid of Trump as soon as possible. Yeah, he was seen as a destabilizing and, uh, factor. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, there's something that I'm also exploring uh, in my book that maybe uh, it, it wasn't so um, much in this article as... Uh, uh, as it might have been, and that's the connection with Great Britain. Uh, because uh, I go through in the book a whole encapsulated history of uh, Great Britain going back to the uh, late 1500s when the British imperial project really began. Uh, and the maiden characteristic of, of this project was that Great Britain would make its way in the world by putting together coalitions to attack and destroy any continental European rival uh, to its uh, power. Uh, first came Spain and the Habsburgs under Charles V. Then came France under Louis XIV. Uh, then came the Dutch, but what happened with the Dutch was that the British and the Dutch uh, uh, way of governance merged in the Glorious Revolution in 1688 when all of the Dutch bankers came over and set up the Bank of England and created the model of English uh, finance that we still have today. Wait, now, were those uh, Dutch next- bankers or Jewish bankers? Well, they were both. All of the they, above. All of all of the above, yeah, and uh, uh, particularly in the uh, uh, Amsterdam uh, uh, banking community, pretty much uh, morphed into the British imperial banking industry of the city of London, that, as we know, eventually came to be dominated by the Rothschilds. Uh, still is, uh, for that matter. Uh, uh, then after that came Napoleon. The uh, the British put together the coalition that defeated Napoleon, and so that set up Britain for its century of dominance in the 19th century. And then lo and behold, Germany came along, and now it became the the British project to destroy Germany. Uh, and that has happened through the two world wars of the 20th century. And we're seeing the same thing going on, of course, against Germany now uh, being the victim of the sanctions that the U.S. and Britain have put in place. Now, now Richard, the, do you think uh, Russia the, has the been targeted war. too? The great game in the 19th Absolutely. century targeted Russia. So if there was kind of divide and conquer, like they're trying to, to hurt, harm and divide uh, both Germany and Russia. Right. Russia is, is now uh, up, up for destruction. Now that Germany has been uh, taken care of, Russia is next. Now, uh, when did the U.S. become part of this? Uh, As you recall, uh, one of the objectives of of Cecil Rhodes when he became the uh, gold and diamond kingpin of South Africa, he worked hand in glove with Nathan Rothschild to set up the round table. And he said, uh, repeatedly in various documents that he put out 
one of the main objectives of the uh, roundtable was to, quote, recover America for the British Empire. Uh, that was the goal that the British elite, who were financed by Rhodes and by Nathan Rothschild, took on as their primary driving motive uh, as they went into the 20th century and prepared for World War I against Germany. And the main way this was accomplished, and it was done, it was done deliberately and consciously, was by the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. This was a project of the British uh, banking system of the Rothschilds. J.P. Morgan was one of their American agents, as was were the Schiffs who ran Kuhn Loeb, uh, as were the Warburgs who came over from uh, uh, Germany to set up uh, the Federal Reserve. And what that did was it took away the congressional prerogative to create money under the U.S. Constitution and handed it over to the private banking industry run out of New York and London. That was the way that the British Empire recovered the United States. And, of course, the uh, United States got right into World War I, even though the American public did not want to do that. Uh, the United States and Britain built Hitler's uh, regime uh, to take us into World War II. We were allied with Russia, with the Soviet Union in World War II. But even as the Second World War was winding down, uh, the CIA and the British uh, uh, intelligence began to infiltrate uh, throughout Europe to keep the Soviet Union off balance and eventually to take on uh, the Soviet Union and Russia as the next uh, continental uh, power that the British Empire and now the American Empire had to destroy for their larger project of total world domination. And uh, so that's what's going on. So, so Richard, uh, the obvious question that just leaps out to me here is that, as you mentioned, uh, from the 19th century on through the 20th century, the Atlantic nations, uh, the British Empire and then the American Empire that took it over, both used a sort of containment strategy, dividing and conquering Germany and Russia, the two uh, biggest right. threats to have uh, a really powerful Eurasian land uh, empire or state. And uh, they they so they had attacked and hobbled uh, both Germany and Russia and then set up the world wars, which in large part, it seems to me, were designed to, to hobble Germany and Russia. And, and you might have right. mentioned the Bolshevik Revolution, which probably was used to hobble Russia. It was actually incited. Yeah, that was a New York bankers project, exactly. the Bolshevik Revolution. Exactly. So, so, so the Atlantic powers have been damaging and dividing and conquering Germany and Russia for two centuries. And right. that, that strategy is to make sure that no, you know, allied movement of Germany and Russia emerges that could unite the Eurasian landmass and right. put an end to the rule of the world by these Atlantic powers. But today, yes. rather than dividing and conquering the two main Eurasian land threats, namely Russia and China, and we, I guess we could throw Iran in there as a, as a third party that's on the same wavelength. 
rather than mm-hmm. dividing them and getting them to fight each other, uh, it seems that now the neocons want to sort of fight them all at the same time. Now, that strikes me as right. kind of stupid strategy. Uh, do you right. agree? Uh, yes, but uh, I think the – let me just say one more word about the neocons. They become kind of the shock troops for the imperial project. Uh, you know, kind of the the ones who are uh, uh, there to do the dirty work uh, for the uh, people at the top who are running the show. Uh, and I think if you take a look at, uh, at the details of how they have uh, acted in some of these wars that have been going on, just absolute ruthlessness, uh, total destruction of whole nations. Uh, that's that's their signature right now, and and, and they're doing it again uh, in in Ukraine. Uh, well, 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 why wouldn't they want to stir up trouble between China and Russia rather than driving Russia into China's arms? Oh, oh, they did. They tried that. That was just that didn't was work. A big part. That was a big part of uh, Nixon's opening to China. Oh yeah, uh, right. To right. get China on board and separate them from Russia, and but that was Nixon. That that wasn't the neocons, and and, and it was well, very. At that time, Russia and China was, were almost on the on the brink of a nuclear war, as I understand it. It was Kissinger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, okay, well, Kissinger isn't a neocon; Kissinger. he's a realist. Well, Kissinger is. Uh, he may not be quote unquote a neocon, but he's been part of the Rockefeller Rothschild cabal. Uh, since day one, really. Uh, even Cheney said that uh, he would very frequently, uh, you know, during the uh, Bush-Cheney years, uh, he would have Kissinger come in and uh, have frequent meetings with him to go over uh, the strategies. And uh under uh, Obama, I, I forget the name of the National Security Advisor. Uh, I, I've got this quote somewhere, but he said every morning when he gets into the office, he calls Dr. Kissinger. Right. Yeah. Kissinger, so Kissinger may, yeah. Yeah, yeah. may not be a quote neocon, unquote, but he's at the very top of the controlling cabal. Uh, yeah. who who run the big show. The big he picture. sort of signed on with the neocons after 9-11, it seems, where Brzezinski didn't, yes, but he did. Kissinger did. Yeah, he did. Kissinger did, yeah. Uh, and and Brzezinski was, was very much against going after the Middle East the way the neocons were doing. He was more interested in Central and Eastern Europe than he was in the Middle East. Uh, but anyway, uh, I I think that we are at a point where the whole edifice has gotten to be so shaky. Uh, if you look at the monetary system, uh, and this is another thing that I'm really trying to focus on in my book, is the financial collapse, because uh, the financial collapse of 2008-2009 was a major milestone uh, in the overextension of the uh, Anglo-American financial system. Uh, the amount of money that had to be uh, uh, pumped into the banking system is just incredible. Uh, the figure I have seen most recently, I'm reading this great book by Nomi Prinz. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Uh, just uh, she writes, 
Yeah, she is, she she's written a book called uh, All the President's Bankers that covers the whole modern history of ban- the relation between banking and and uh, a high government policy. She's come up with a figure of 19 trillion dollars, which was the amount of money that the Federal Reserve and the uh, US Treasury pumped into the American financial system to keep it from collapsing through all of the fraudulent schemes that had been run through the Bush-Cheney administration. Uh, and, and all of that is now debt overhang uh, on the U.S. economy. And it's all been created out of thin air by the Federal Reserve. I mean, the Federal Reserve has billions of dollars in equity in big companies. They own a huge amount of the American economy. Nobody knows that. Uh, and it's just uh, that's what they mean when they talk about the Fed printing money. So uh, what do you mean exactly that it owns the economy? You're talking about the, because I thought the Fed was owned by a bunch of big banks, uh, starting with uh, yeah. like the New York Fed. Yeah. So basically it's privately owned uh, by some of the yeah. biggest bankers. But in what sense does it own the economy? Do they does the the Fed itself own shares in corporations, or is it the constituent banks that do? Or how does that work? They don't. They don't own shares. They own debt. Uh, they have put so much money in in uh, uh, loans. Uh, the best example is AIG, the big insurance company. Uh, they actually. Uh, uh, gained ownership of AIG during the financial meltdown, and AIG used that to pay billions of dollars to the banks that they were in debt to. So the Federal Reserve, and if you if you go into Nomi Friend's book, the Federal Reserve is actually the owner on record of businesses. Uh, it's called their book, uh, the Fed's book, uh, and it's trillions and trillions of dollars. And it's all fictitious money. They don't get it from anywhere. They just create it as debit entries in their accounting system. And what this does is it creates a massive push toward inflation because it has no backing. Uh, And the banks don't lend this money back out into the economy because the economy has been so weak, particularly the manufacturing economy, that... uh, Companies can't afford to borrow from the Fed or from the banks, even though they've got billions of dollars uh, sitting there uh, available to be used. But all that's used for is to pay their uh, employees. Uh, It's not really uh, part of the producing economy. So you have created through this massive load of debt a monster. And this monster uh, has to be fed. Uh, an, an example, the, the Federal Reserve claims that it has raised interest rates to fight inflation, right? Mm-hmm. And there's that's a debate about say. whether that's a good idea. Uh, yeah, because the inflation is not coming from uh, people just jacking up prices, although there is some price gouging going on. But it's coming from supply line, supply chain issues having to do in part with the pandemic. The real reason the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates is 
that the world economy is so sick of the 0% interest rate regime that Bernanke put in to rescue the economy during the Great Recession that they would not invest money anymore in the U.S. economy unless the Fed began to jack up interest rates where they could get a return on their investment. So the uh, increase in interest rates is to get uh, uh, foreign countries, uh, particularly Japan, our biggest investor, to keep buying U.S. government uh, securities and other uh, debt instruments uh, in the U.S. market. Uh, and so what Japan does, Japan has, uh, they are still on the 0% interest rate regime. So the big financial institutions in Japan are now buying uh, U.S. debt by borrowing money at 0%, and they invested in the United States now at 5%. Uh, this is a whole big uh scheme by the Federal Reserve to shore up the economy because the uh, uh, people weren't willing anymore to buy uh, debt at zero percent. And, and let, let me, let me ask you one, one more yeah, thing yeah. About, about the yeah. uh, interest rate situation. I, as I understand it, in a, you know, the simplified view is that the inflation is caused by too many dollars chasing too few goods. And it's always about the ratio of available dollars chasing available goods. And when you raise interest rates, you are essentially causing fewer loans to be made. Uh, and since the way right. money is created is that it's loaned into existence uh, based on nothing, just created with a stroke of a pen or a keyboard, um, that when you raise the interest rates, uh, less money gets created. And that right. tames inflation. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the that's the pretty much the the basic uh, uh, explanation for how how it works under conditions where there are no other major factors at play. Uh, yeah, so uh, it, it, it can do that, but you also are running the risk, <clears throat> which the Federal Reserve is doing right now, driving the economy into a recession, and so we're starting to see. Warnings coming out of massive layoffs looming at Amazon and other uh, other businesses uh, because of this. So, uh, but uh, uh, because they need to keep bringing in foreign investment, that's the risk they're willing to run. They're willing willing to put the the economy into a recession uh, in order to uh, uh, be able to attract foreign investment. So, yeah, it, it works. All of these factors are working at the same time. But we are, but they're willing to take the risk of going back into a recession, uh, which they were not willing to do back in, uh, uh, back in the Obama years when the huge bailouts were being, uh, being thrown at the economy. So what I'm trying to say is that all of these massive uh, uh, debt loads that, the U.S. has incurred where we have to have constant money coming in <clears throat> from other countries to support our debt. And another good example is Saudi Arabia uh, with the petrodollar. The, the deal was made with Saudi Arabia by Kissinger, uh, which was, yeah, you can double your prices for oil as long as all the money you're making, you invest in U.S. government bonds 
and in U.S. banks. And Saudi Arabia has been doing that now for a generation. Now they're looking at getting out of that system, uh, dropping the dollar and joining uh, Russia and the, and the BRICS. Uh, and that's a tremendous threat and danger to the financial system and to the basic uh, ability of the Anglo-American uh, financiers to keep their control. And, and do you think that was one of the uh, factors behind 9-11? Because in August of 2001, the king of Saudi Arabia announced that it was time for, quote, the parting of the ways as Saudi Arabia needed okay. to leave the U.S. imperial orbit because of the U.S. embrace of Israel and the genocide of Palestine, which the Saudi people and the Arab people in general wouldn't support. So uh, suddenly 9-11 happened, and those Saudi leaders who favored leaving the U.S. empire suddenly started turning up dead, and the ones who were willing to be puppets of the U.S. empire stayed alive and continued to run the country post-9-11. Uh, that was probably one of the motives for 9-11. And now that, once again, the Saudi leadership is threatening to leave the U.S. empire and actually uh, making some moves in that direction, do you think that there'll be more uh, drastic uh, repercussions? Huh, I didn't know that. That's uh, I have to put that in my book. Uh, yeah. That's that's a that's good. I mean, that makes sense. Perfect sense, uh, and and fits in perfectly. So, so the the United States, and I, again, Britain is part of this. In fact, there I've read somewhere somebody who said that Britain is the tugboat that guides the ocean liner. Uh, that that's a pretty good uh, way of putting it. I think the relationship between Great Britain and the United States, uh, uh, the tugboat and the ocean liner, uh, they're they're in this together. Uh, Wait, is the U.S. Yeah, an ocean the, liner or a brainless barge? <laughs> right, <laughs> probably the barge <laughs> or, or the tanker. Yeah. But uh, so what we're seeing now, I think, is a massive panic by the U.S. and Great Britain as they see the world slipping out of their control. And the reason this is such a panic is that the debt-based financial system that is based on fractional reserve lending, where banks create massive amounts of money out of thin air, lend it at compound interest, where the debt overhang grows exponentially, uh, which is why Janice Yellen is in such a panic now that the Republicans want to, you know, uh, enforce the, the debt ceiling. Uh, it, it all fits together. Uh, the, the system is a it's, it's like a monster with its mouth always open, always hungry, always has to be fed. And it has to be fed by the assets of other countries. That's the system they created. It's the system that's been in place for centuries. Uh, and it's a system that they can't uh, find a way to let go of. So, so they're basically so, they're getting uh, disguised imperial tribute through this system. Rather yeah, than di directly yeah. demanding imperial tribute, they get it through the back door. Yeah, that's that's dollar hegemony, uh, as it's called. Uh, and it, it was the system that was set up by the U.S. at Bretton Woods uh, during World War II where all other currencies were going to be keyed to the dollar. And, of course, $35 an ounce gold was part of that. And so Nixon got rid of that and, and made the standard the petrodollar, 
But yeah, it always has to be fed by more and more assets coming from other countries. And that's why the Russian and Chinese idea of a multipolar world is a threat that is so profound to the Anglo-American financial system that it's a death knell for that system. And so it's, it's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, that game where where you, something pops up and you push it down and then something six feet away pops up and you got to reach over and pop that down. It sounds like whack-a-mole. Everything now That's... is popping up against the, uh, uh, the regime of the dollar and the U.S. is in a huge panic. That's right. Yeah, I, I think that's a great description of the situation. Well, what what would be the solution? Uh, the two that I hear about would be uh, there's the public banking solution that Ellen Brown advocates, right. which would be the Treasury uh, getting back in charge of creating money, doing it transparently and in such a way as to maximize benefits to the majority of Americans. Uh, the Main Street economy would be the focus, get rid of a lot of the casino spent uh, gambling uh, and so on. And so that's one answer is is public uh, uh, banking. And, of course, that's more or less what China actually does. The other answer is one advocated by Matthew Crawford, who's coming on in the second hour of this show. And he's more of a libertarian who argues that if you give anybody the power to create currency, they're always going to abuse it. They're always going to print too much. They're always going to deflate their own currency because they have that exorbitant privilege of just putting out their, as much of their own uh, currency as they want. So what you want is a system that's inherently stable. And precious metals had a certain amount of that inherent stability. There was a limit on how much could be mined each year and so on. And then uh, Bitcoin, he says, has the same kind, in fact, even more inherent stability. There's a limit to how many Bitcoins can be mined. And so with these kinds of systems, you have a currency that's not being created by some special privileged player, uh, one node in, in the network, but rather the, it's distributed across the entire network. And that uh, that's what he advocates is, is that kind of either you know, precious metals or better yet, uh, a Bitcoin type of system and then a free market around that. So what's your take? Which do you vote for, public banking or, uh, or free market uh, hard currency? Well, I'm, I'm in favor of the Constitution. And the Constitution says that Congress shall have the right to coin money and establish the value thereof. So that creates initially a public uh, uh, monetary system. So I'm, I'm on that side. I think Bitcoin is a total fraud. Uh, and I think the precious metals uh, is a catastrophe. The, uh, when, when the world financial system was on the gold standard, which, of course, uh, the Rothschilds control because they set the price of gold, uh, at a meeting every morning in the uh, their offices in the city of London, you had this situation, Kevin, where uh, as balance of payments uh, changed uh, in countries, you literally had uh, regular uh, shipments where they would take gold out of the basement of the Bank of England, put it on a boat, and put her over to America and put it in a vault over here. And then two or three years later, when the balance changed, they put it on the boat in New York, put it over to London and put it there. And, and 
this is well, what's wrong with that? It, gives, it creates jobs for sailors and shipbuilders, <laughs> right? And gold miners. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, in my book, I have a whole section because when I was at the U.S. Treasury Department, I worked very closely with the American Monetary Institute. In fact, I worked very closely with Ellen Brown. And I've spoken uh, before at the Public Banking Institute. Uh, she and I met at a conference back early 2000s where we kind of put our heads together and, and uh, she went with the Public Banking Institute, whose model is the Bank of uh, North Dakota. I went more in the direction of creating a Treasury Department monetary creation system. Uh, and I worked very closely on this with the American Monetary uh, Association that was run by the late Steve Zarlinga, uh, who wrote a fabulous book uh, on monetary theory that completely demolished the whole idea of uh, uh, fractional reserve banking. And what we did was we wrote a draft American Monetary Act that essentially, if you want to look at a historical precedent, look at the greenbacks that the Congress uh, created during the Civil War. It was a true fiat currency where they printed and spent into circulation several hundred million dollars. Uh, which became the most popular currency ever created by the United States. And people don't realize this, but there were greenbacks in circulation into the 20th century. Uh, and the system worked beautifully. The bankers attacked it. Uh, I suppose the libertarians did too, because here was Lincoln printing money. Very few people know that the same system was set up in the territory of Colorado. Uh, the governor of Colorado was faced with a Confederate invasion coming up from Texas, and he had no money, uh, didn't know what to do. Lincoln said, print greenbacks. He did, and it saved the West for the Union. Now, now were these uh, uh, Colorado greenbacks, or were these federal greenbacks? Yeah. Colorado? I, I, don't, I don't know. Really? I, I don't, I've never seen them. Huh. Uh, but they, they were a greenback currency, uh, just like like the federal. Uh, now, going back to what I was relating, uh, back in the around 2005, 2006, I had meetings, and so did Steve Zarlinga. We, we met with Dennis Kucinich, uh, and it was a time when Dennis was running, trying to run for president uh, in 2004 and then again in 2008, and uh, we got Dennis uh, educated on monetary reform and on the history of the U.S. monetary system. Uh, it helped that Dennis got married to Steve Zarlinga's assistant, who was a young uh, uh, English girl who uh, had a lot of background in the monetary reform movement in England, which is a lot more sophisticated than ours is. And in 2011, Dennis introduced in Congress uh, what he called the NEED Act, National Education, the National Emergency and Employment and Defense Act. It's the most advanced monetary reform legislation ever introduced in the United States Congress since the Civil War, since since the Greenback era. 
And it created, it, it abolished the Federal Reserve, which is an absolute necessity. Uh, it's the most corrupt institution on the planet. It should be abolished. And it incorporated all of the banking uh, oversight and currency creation into a monetary authority that was uh, put into the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Now, the libertarians will say, oh, well, they can print anything they want. They can finance more war, etc." Well, true. And that's why it has to be very, very carefully controlled uh, by the political system. And of course, now, uh, anytime anybody criticizes the Federal Reserve, oh, Federal Reserve has to be politically independent. Otherwise, the politicians will get in there and do this. That's just baloney. Well, well, the fear, the fear is that the political system is always going to have, you know, people are going to vote for printing money for themselves, basically. Uh, and so that, that's, well, there's always to be too much money, called, money printed that way. Another name of that is democracy for the people to decide where their money should be spent. And obviously, you're going to have to have educated, intelligent people who are studying this thing and saying, well, this is the amount of money that can safely be uh, allocated, but it'll come out through expenditures. It'll be spent largely on infrastructure, uh, which was the main uh, tenet of the American system that was created by the uh, uh, Republicans in the, uh, well, first the Whigs and then the Republicans. Lincoln was a, a big advocate of infrastructure spending, which is why he was so big on the railroads. And, of course, it was the railroads that created the modern infrastructure for the United States. And the Germans copied the American system. The Russians copied the American system. And that's how they industrialized. And even the and Chinese the hated the American system. The Chinese are doing it now. They're building high-speed rail with public banking. Absolutely. They're doing the American system. And if you go, you know, there's, there's a certain, uh, you've probably heard of Lyndon LaRouche. Oh, sure, of course. Uh, yeah, I have uh, one of his disciples, Matt Arad, is a regular guest here. Yeah, and, and this was his whole this was his whole thing: uh, control of the banking system by this federal government in order to uh, uh, create a national infrastructure as the backbone of the of, of the economic system. So, yeah, China's doing it. They're they're doing what the Americans did after the Civil War when we built the most powerful industrial machine on Earth. Yeah, China's doing it now. So that's kind of In ironic, fact, isn't people, it? <laughs> the, very ironic. the big fight, the U.S. versus China, you know, clash the titans to determine who rules the world, features the Chinese running the American system, and then the Americas running this uh, ancient, you know, pre-American Revolution British uh, bankster system. Yeah, yeah, the bankster system. That's absolutely right, and and I would, I, I guess we're getting down to the end of the yeah. Talk, we have, we have but, about four minutes left. But uh, what the United States should do right now is, uh, other than implementing the Kucinich legislation, make friends with Russia, and make friends with China, and and let Europe merge with Russia as they should, naturally, Russia's part of Europe, and create a worldwide system based upon public financing of infrastructure, the Belt and Road Initiative. We should connect our own Belt and Road from the U.S. In fact, there was a plan in place 
that was being talked about uh, to extend the uh, U.S. Rail, rail system up through British Columbia, Alaska, across the Bering Strait. And I believe that Putin has proposed a tunnel under the Bering Strait to well, connect good with to the American I'm ready to uh, catch a train system. here in Wisconsin and ride all the way you know, across the Trans-Siberian <laughs> Express to Moscow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, Visit that, idea, that idea was broached in the 1900s when they were building the Trans-Siberian Express. There were people in the U.S. and Russia who were talking about connecting our system with theirs. Right. And, and the, so what, over and, the Bering Strait. And, and we could kind of be the, you know, the biggest single factor in the Western Hemisphere side yes. of Belt and Road. And, and that, that's yes, what Al McCoy exactly. is, is advocating in his latest piece, uh, which I'm going to talk about in False Flag Weekly News tomorrow. He's saying we yes. should give up trying to run the world, uh, stop having the, you yes. know, this war on Russia, China, and Iran, and instead yes. focus on cleaning up our own act and working within our own hemisphere. Uh, which makes yeah, a lot of sense. I so, agree. Yeah. So why totally don't we? Yeah. Why don't we have to be but, a, a wor- the world only world hegemon? Why couldn't we too just be a regional hegemon and let Russia and China be regional hegemons too? That is so true. I am so much in favor of that. But you can't do it unless you get rid of the Anglo-American banking system. That has got to come first. And that's what the Occupy movement saw. You know, they were sort of ahead of their time. Yeah, they did. They They were absolutely right. So they got run out of the park. Yeah, Occupy had it. I I knew people in Occupy. Mm -hmm. I worked with them in Roanoke. And and the French Yellow Vests, uh, many of them at least, seem to have understand this too. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, it keeps cropping up. One of these days, one of these movements really, uh, you know, needs to break through and actually win. Right. So abolish the Fed. That's number one. And the Fed. Abolish the Fed, set up a greenback system like Lincoln did, and then we're ready to go. Okay. Well, that uh, makes sense to me, actually. And uh, so Good. are you running for president? <laughs> I'm a little old for that. Right now. I hope <laughs> to get this book written. Okay. Yeah. Well, so if somebody uh, has your program and runs for president, I'll probably vote for them. That's for sure. Uh, well, maybe Douglas McGregor will run. Oh, that would be great, wouldn't it? That would be nice. Yeah. I don't know who he means by the American nationalists. So I hope he's got a group behind him. But the the Kucinich legislation is in the platform of the Green Party. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting because yeah, the the Green Party in Europe, of course, is totally on board with the war on Russia. They're crazy. But the American Green Party, and I know the people very well, I was even talking back way back about actually running for vice president for the Green Party on this platform. Uh, that didn't happen, but they did adopt the Kucinich uh, uh, legislation as their platform. And and they, they are pushing that out there whenever they can. Excellent. It's a great bunch of people. You know, I, I did interview De, uh, Kucinich a while back. We didn't really yeah, get yeah. into this stuff. Uh, I would have liked to hear right. more about that. Yeah. And and also yeah, about really his work. To ex- big... yeah. He wanted to expose 9-11, of course, which is you know one of the crimes yeah. of this elite that needs to be overthrown. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that he escaped with his sanity and his life intact. You yeah. See what happened to Paul Wellstone. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah, yeah taking, Dennis is a Dennis is a great man in my opinion. He's a true American hero. Yeah, I was I was very impressed with him too. And you know, he's apparently yeah. been dodging assassination attempts since way back when he was mayor of Cleveland. Well, so that, when he was that a, says something. When he was a kid. 
<laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, we hit the end of the hour. We have the bumper music playing now. So thank you so much, Richard okay. Cook. It's, it's always great uh, okay. talking with thank you. Thank you, Kevin. I yep. enjoyed it. Okay. Great article. That's Richard Cook back in the second hour with Matthew Crawford, who's going to respond to Ron, Ron Unz's articles arguing that the mortality statistics show that the vaccines can't be killing huge numbers of people. Well, Matthew Crawford said it was 200,000 Americans killed by COVID vaccines. We'll see whether he's changed his mind in the second hour. Stick with it.